Hello and welcome to Geneva and the World Economic Forum. My name is Adrian Monk. Welcome back to everyone for our great Reset <coughs> Dialogue series. This one, A New Deal for Business. We have an incredible uh, lineup of speakers today. Joining us from Singapore, we have Senior Minister Tarman Shanmugaratnam from Paris. We have Hanel Guria, the Secretary General of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. From Boston, the Chairman and CEO of the Bank of America, Brian Moynihan. From New York, we have the President and CEO of the New York Stock Exchange, Stacey Cunningham. And from Beijing, from Kaijin Global, we have Li Jin uh, from uh, China's top business news organization. <coughs> so an incredible lineup, but most important, we have you joining us. And if you have questions for our speakers or you want to raise points, please use the Q&A function on Zoom. At the end of this session, Li Jin from Beijing will be chairing a special continuation of some of the themes and issues we've discussed here. So please stay on for that if you'd like. But without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the president of the World Economic Forum, who will be chairing today's call, Berger Brenda. Thank you so much, uh, Adrian, and uh, welcome to all the speakers. And very good to have almost 1,000 people online again. Uh, we're resuming uh, after uh, the July uh, break. Of course, we were all hoping things would look a little bit better after uh, the summer. We're still, unfortunately, uh, expecting the global economy to contract 5% this year. But we are seeing some economies now uh, facing more of a V-shaped recovery. The second largest one in the world, China, we expect growing 1.3% this year. There are also some positive signals in some of the other larger uh, economies. I think one of the reasons why we're seeing this, even if we're faced with one of the most complicated recessions uh, and possibly recovery uh, in the world, is that regardless of a more polarized world, we have seen unparalleled synchronized measures being taken when it comes to fiscal stimuli. It's not been coordinated, but it has been a kind of concerted action, whatever it takes, and uh, that has uh, also led to a situation that is a bit better than we may be feared uh, in the spring. But still, uh, of course, if you look at the markets, it looks like the best of days. But uh, at the same time, we are seeing lately some figures that are showing us that uh, the recovery uh, is losing pace uh, almost at the beginning. And if you use those letters, is it a V, is it a, a U, is it an L? I think the latest letter that has been uh, put on the table is a K. Markets going up, and then we see also a, a lot of challenges and mystery uh, in some countries with also increased uh, poverty. We will have chance to also look at how we can use the stimulus in a way to transform the world into something more sustainable. I think this is one of the great topics. Companies that have done so are also faring better uh, in uh, the markets and with 10 trillion US dollars on the table, why don't we use this money also to make sure that we face a more sustainable, environmentally friendly and inclusive world. So 
on this note, uh, I will start uh, with Senior Minister Tarman from Singapore. He's a very acknowledged uh, economist. We're also very privileged to have Tarman on our Board of Trustees at the World Economic Forum. So Tarman, listening and seeing the economic news coming out now, what are the measures we should take, uh, maybe in addition to what we're doing or underline more? Uh, to make sure that this uh, recession is as short as possible and that we see a real recovery. Tarma. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, uh, Berger. Um, let me focus my remarks on the issue of um, uh, sup global supply chains, trade and global supply chains, uh, which are obviously going through uh, significant reshaping. And I think it's useful for us to disentangle in our minds the uh, very obvious impacts of uh, COVID, the COVID lockdowns, from the uh, underlying longer-term shifts that we were already seeing in global supply chains or global value chains, um, principally because of the evolution of the Chinese economy, which I'll come back to in a minute, uh, and also disentangle them from, from the, the geopolitics of uh, supply chains. Um, uh, including the domestic drivers, the populist backlash against global sourcing and so on and so forth. I think we very often conflate all these things together, uh, COVID, some of the underlying shifts, as well as the geopolitics. And when you conflate things together, you end up with a rather bleak picture. Um, we have to be clear first and foremost as to what our objectives should be. You know, what's the design objective when we think about um, uh, trade and global supply chains? Resilience, uh, has to be um, built into our design objectives. Resilience has to be an objective, uh, but so too has uh, growth to be an objective. Uh, growth, meaning inclusive growth and sustainable growth, uh, has to be foremost in our minds. And the question is, how do we achieve resilience in a new global environment, including a pandemic-prone global environment, as well as growth? How do we avoid a sharp trade-off between resilience and growth. And I think first we have to um, uh, avoid uh, silver bullet type solutions, avoid extreme solutions. We know that the hyper-efficient, hyper-specialized, hyper-globalized um, system of supply chains um, doesn't achieve resilience and uh, will have to be modified. And one way of thinking about it, one way of thinking about that trade-off between resilience and growth and how we can minimize it, is to think of it, think of efficiency in more dynamic terms. In other words, not just statistic, uh, static efficiency, where the most uh, just-in-time model of um, supply chains can deliver very uh, uh, highly efficient systems, but think of efficiency in the dynamic and more long-term sense, where you'll come where we are bound to encounter shocks, be pandemics or other shocks, and you want a, a system that's resilient or, or robust across scenarios. So we think of it in terms of dynamic efficiency. Um, some of today's hyper-efficient supply chains will have to be modified. But at the same time, we've got to avoid thinking that onshoring, nearshoring, and much shorter global supply chains are the solutions. Um, the best studies, uh, show that, in fact, they are not resilient. Uh, onshoring is not a resilient uh, strategy. And, and quite obviously, neither is it optimal for growth. Uh, it's also costly for consumers. Uh, consumers, by the way, are going to remain uh, all over the world concerned about value for money. Uh, so 
uh, onshoring and nearshoring is, is, a, is a tempting proposition. It tends to get bandied around a lot, um, but it's, uh, it's neither resilient, uh, nor is it um, uh, growth friendly. Uh, nor, nor is it friendly in terms of inclusive growth, in terms of generating jobs. Um, I think we have to think of resilience, therefore, first in terms of how we modify systems that may have been hyper-specialized and hyper-efficient, and it still has to remain about openness. Uh, we do have to retain, at the core of it all, the principle of diversification because diversification through global trade and global sourcing is in fact a source of resilience and it's a source of growth. The China plus one strategies of um, uh, most leading companies are likely to accelerate. Um, and an important reason for it isn't just the geopolitics, although the geopolitics is part of it. An important reason for it has been the evolution of the Chinese economy. Um, uh, China's costs are rising, its wages are rising, China's moving up the value curve, and even Chinese enterprises are now exporting capital abroad, are investing abroad, uh, to be able to make the most of comparative advantage in other Asian countries. So China plus one is, is a consequence of the natural evolution of the Asian economies, as well as the opportunities that we see for diversification within, within Asia. Um, but well beyond the issue of location, we have to think more fundamentally as to what a resilient global supply chain means. And it's not just about location, it's basically about risk management capabilities, which were probably not given sufficient attention in, in a whole range of industries and now have to be. And what it means is first being able to plan your production and your supply chains so that you can flex production across plants, across sites, at short notice. It means building in res uh, building resilience, or sorry, building redundancy, um, uh, both redundancy with regard to supplier networks as well as uh, transportation networks. It means inventories. It does mean increasing intelligent uh, stockpiling, uh, particularly for critical inputs. And it means basically the operational capacity to respond quickly to shocks and recover. Uh, and this is a, it's an under, emphasized trait of the most successful global companies. Risk management capability, ability to deal with shocks, including quite un unanticipated shocks. Uh, finally, I want to say that we've got to be minded about the shape of global trade and global supply chains, um, also from the angle of the green economy. Um, most companies certainly most leading companies find that the, the bulk of the environmental impact uh, uh, in their business comes from supply chains. So thinking hard about efficiency of supply chains is also a, a, a green priority, a digitization of logistics operations in order to optimize cargo loads, uh, to optimize transportation. Uh, it has to be a fundamental objective. It's good for resilience, it's good for growth, it's good for the green economy. Um, uh, the sharing economy model in logistics. Uh, some logistics firms, for instance, are now introducing pallet rental services, uh, where instead of purchasing pallets and then disposing of them after transportation, you rent pallets. Um, uh, seems a fairly basic idea, but for some reason it hasn't taken off in the past and it's now taking off. Um, uh, transparency, 
just transparency and disclosure across the supply chain when it comes to environmental impact will itself be a powerful force. And I know Brian and others are, are, are very focused on that. So I wanted to emphasize that, that it is possible for us to achieve resilience, growth, and advance the green economy. And one final very quick point, be mindful. We all have to be mindful about the future of SMEs, given what's happening in COVID, as well as what's happening in the reshaping of global trade. The large firms will, I think, manage okay. But digitization and the increased complexity we now face, including the need for greater risk management, doesn't always favor SMEs. And we've got to make it work for SMEs because they're the bulk of employment in the global economy. Um, I think, ironically, it means that this next phase of globalization um, will require a deeper form of globalization that involves regulatory harmonization. Globalization can't be about deregulation. This next phase has to be about this deeper form of globalization that involves regulatory harmonization on everything from digital rules, cross-border data flow, as well as green, the, the rules for the green economy, uh, both rules as well as peer pressure, uh, and sometimes more than peer pressure, so that everyone plays by the same rules. Having the same rules across borders helps SMEs the most. We need that simplicity and we need that lack of friction across borders uh, in order to preserve an SME economy globally. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, thank you so much, uh, Minister Charman. And also your second point uh, about the deepening of a globalization. It has uh, to be uh, retaught. Uh, it is not only about less affair and less regulations. It's also about uh, not only a great reset, but also uh, a great uh, change uh, of mindset. But to your uh, also point about we have to make sure that we get more resilient without seeing that hurting growth too much. And at the same time, we have to make sure that we will see a more uh, sustainable economy. We do know, though, since 1990, we have doubled the size of the global economy. At the same time, we have increased global trade four times. So trade has been the engine of growth. So if we're going to get back on the growth track, how can we do this in a situation where the sidecar sentiment uh, is uh, more protectionistic? Do you see opportunities here and, and what are they? I, I think first of all, we must recognize that globalization was never a policy. It was the outcome of countless decisions by countless economic actors, consumers first and foremost, firms small and large, and all the intermediaries um, in the system. Globalization was an outcome of a search for greater efficiency and growth opportunity. We've got to re-envisage what efficiency means, which is the point I was making earlier. But don't forget that people will want to find markets and they'll want to find growing markets. And one of the powerful sources of globalization or global sourcing even today is the desire to link up with the fastest growing and most competitive parts of the world. Um, it's not just Asia, but speaking about Asia, I'll have to say that China, India, Southeast Asia uh, are the fastest growing parts of the world. And every company, small and large, would want to grow. They'd want to be plugged into those markets, 
but they'd also like to be part of a supply chain and a production network that relates to the suppliers in those markets as well. And uh, China is a classic case because it's both still a growing market, significantly growing market. It will slow down very significantly in the next decade, but it's a growing market. But it's also got deep supplier networks. And all the leading firms I speak to, uh, European, American, and Asian, aren't thinking of a simple strategy of exiting China. Very few are. Uh, and they certainly won't be able to uh, reconfigure their global supply chains if they're not growing, because it takes great cost to reconfigure your supply chains. To uproot a plant from one country to another is a great cost. And you only do that if you're growing, if you've got revenues. So we have to keep in our minds what motivates economic actors, consumers who want value for money, firms that want to grow their revenues. And it means remodeling our concepts of efficiency for more resilience, but it also means taking advantage of growth opportunity everywhere in the world. I think that's what will shape the final outcomes and governments should attempt to facilitate that process whilst ensuring that national interest is preserved in, the, in an environment where you get large shocks. And that national interest is best preserved, not by doing everything on your own, because that's actually a, a, a dangerous strategy for yourself. It exposes you to even more vulnerability, but it's preserved through diversification of supplier networks, diversification of trade. And that also happens to be in the interest of much of the emerging world. Thank you so much, uh, Senior Minister Terman. I think uh, I can speak on behalf of all the participants that we always feel wiser having been listening uh, to you. So thank you so much. Um, it's now my pleasure uh, to move on to Secretary General of uh, OECD, Angel Gurria. OECD uh, is the foremost uh, economic think tank uh, in the world, and Angel Gurria has been heading this impressive organization uh, for many uh, years. And I think, um, Angel, that a lot of the participants and would like to really hear from you uh, when we will see a recovery, what kind of uh, economic activity will we then uh, be seeing as part of this uh, recovery? Well, uh First of all, uh, we, we are a do tank, not a think tank. Uh, our motto, as says in the back here, is better policies for better life. So we are oriented towards uh, the, the action of policy and uh, the consequences of policy, the measurement of policy, and then, of course, the adjustments of the policy. Um, we, uh, uh, we said that 2020 is going to be minus 6% for the world. In case it was a second wave, then minus 7.5%. Okay. Now, that was a few weeks ago. Today, we are putting out the numbers for the second quarter for the OECD. It's almost 10% contraction, unprecedented. Um, and of course, you go all the way from uh, the best ones, uh, Japan, uh, only, only minus 7.8% to the UK, which is minus 20%. So basically, the second quarter is very, very tough. 
So when you're talking about V's and when you're talking about U's and L's, we're really talking about a pretty dire situation. And second, the second wave uh, um, phenomenon happening in different ways, in different intensities in a number of countries. And therefore, what I would say is, uh, well, coming to our worst nightmare, if you will, uh, because um, it, it is it just making it more, more and more difficult. Um, we have, um, we're gonna have, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's gonna be very difficult. You, you mentioned um, yourself, Borge, not coordinated. This is one of the problems that we have. Um, and uh, the question is, uh, how big should the measures be? How long should they stay? And here, I'm just gonna give you a very clear example. Uh, yesterday, uh, Germany announced that they're going to keep the unemployment support uh, for the whole of 2021. The whole discussion in the United States about the new uh, stimulus package is how long and then how much do they go into the continuation or whether they go at all into the continuation of the support that they gave before? Because that is going to define the impact. We still uh, are in a very difficult situation to find out, but whether those support measures continue to be maintained or not, or whether they are reduced or not, becomes, and, and when to withdraw them. Remember the big mistake we made in 2008, 2009, we withdrew the stimulus too fast. We went into austerity uh, too fast. And what happened is we went into two further downturns of the world economy uh, after that because we were too fast. We should not do, we should not make the same mistake uh, this time. Uh, but the, the greatest problem is uh, in terms of what to do is uh, what, you know, th there's a false dilemma here. Lives against livelihoods is a totally false dilemma. What you should do, of course, is throw everything you got, including the kitchen sink, at the virus. Beat the virus, control the virus, which is what is not happening now. Uh, and of course, that has a cost, but the cost of not doing that is much greater. And then what we're seeing right now is that because we did not do the first part well enough, we are now paying a very, very expensive price in terms of unemployment, in terms of SMEs. Dharma was talking about SMEs. You were talking about SMEs. Those are the great victims. Uh, some sectors like tourism, what can I say about that? Um, and and uh, part of the, of the services. So when you're, you're, you're thinking about what to do, the first thing is, of course, you uh, do the sanitary you be, because you, you, you throw everything you got at the uh, uh, situation of well, the, the people who are sick. You try to save lives. But at the same time, you are dealing with almost the next day it happened. 
that you were leading with the con dealing with the consequences. The consequences being uh, uh, massive tens of millions of unemployed happening almost instantaneously. Uh, and now, talking about the shape of the recovery, very fast down, predictably some recovery. Obviously, the moment you normalize, quote unquote, not only China, but the rest of the countries, open some of the sectors, we were bound to have better numbers. But the question is, it will be a truncated uh, second part of the V, because we will get there go into more like a, into the U, uh, into the U shape. And the question is, how long does the bottom line of the U uh, will, will last? Why? Because once you get the, let's say, the stability that the quote-unquote reopening or normalization will bring to certain sectors, then you will see the hard numbers about how many millions and millions of people actually lost the jobs, do not have a job, and then you will not be able, or most countries, they're not Germany, most countries will not be able to continue to support or they will have to have a, a, a very tough calculation in terms of how they deal with the debt situation in their own countries, uh, you know, maybe taking into account the very low interest rate, et cetera, or uh, clearly the debt to GDP consequences uh, that will happen with a shrinking GDP and a growing debt. So you will have uh, a ratio that is going to be uh, biting on, on the two sides. So. Thank you. The answer today, Borge, is uh, we do not know. It's early. I would have thought that by this time we would know enough because it would be a thing of the past. Unfortunately, it is not. We are right in the middle of it, and it may get worse. Wow. Thank you, uh, Angel. I'm, I'm very conscious about the time, but I, I would like to have one follow-up question, but um, we have only two minutes uh, to go. Listening to you know uh, it's very sobering. Uh, um, in a way, you can even hear like a W or worst case an L, uh, but we also have to manage quite complexities here because we, as you said, we can't go into austerity like we did too early after the uh, Great Recession last time, but we see the global debt is no higher uh, than last time, so how long can we continue with this and how to make sure that the stimulus also makes the necessary structural changes, because if you furlough people that will not have a job after a year, because there are structural changes, we are also uh, in a dilemma. So a two minutes answer to that angle. The problem of skilling is going to be crucial, because as is the case in every crisis, the more vulnerable will suffer most. But here in the 2008-2009, the middle skilled uh, with, uh, did, were the ones that were more affected. The low skilled were not so affected. And of course, the people at the top always do uh, very well. Right now, it's the low skilled that are being more affected and the ones that may lose their links with the markets more permanently. That is going to be a very serious uh, uh, result of the and, and, and because they're more difficult to catch up in terms of skilling 
but also because you may see uh, not only uh, very serious economic and financial pressures, you're also going to see very serious political pressures. Um, we already had a very bad uh, series of uh, uh, countries where you had discontent all over going in the streets for different numbers, for different reasons. Now it's, it's, it may get worse. And let me just comment uh, very briefly on the question of global value chains. Don't shorten the value chains. Diversify the value chains, because otherwise we run the danger of getting less efficiency uh, throughout. And then uh, a last thought, Borge, we already were in deep trouble before COVID struck. And the reason was because we had the trade tensions, uh, not only between the United States and, uh, uh, and China, but also in a number of other trade tensions, the United States and um, in Europe, uh, the, the trade tensions coming from the digital taxation issue, uh, etc. So already we were in deep trouble, already uh, trade was growing flat or negative. And of course, uh, without trade, without uh, investment, you know, why do you, why do you invest? You invest to produce and you produce to sell, but if you don't know if you can sell, uh, then why invest at all? So already we have that problem. Now it's getting uh, even worse with the uncertainty provoked by COVID. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much, Angel. Thank you also for your leadership at the OECD uh, through two uh, very difficult uh, crisis in the global economy. Thank you also for being on our board of trustees at the World Economic Forum. Uh, Adrian, uh, you listened uh, to you know, um, two uh, very uh, sobering but also uh, aspirational uh, interventions. I, I leave now um, the moderation to you. Thank you, Borger. And, um yeah, I think we've got a very interesting uh, viewpoint coming up because we'll be talking to Brian Moynihan, who's chairman and CEO of Bank of America, who's also chairman of the Forum's International Business Council and is leading the charge on helping us think about ESG and how business can uh, make uh, that happen. But before perhaps you talk a little bit about that, Brian, you've got an incredible vantage point there as, uh, as Bank of America's uh, Top, uh, top executive on global economies. What's your outlook, having heard from both Tarman and, and from Anhel? Sure, I, I think it has similar elements uh, in terms of our outlook. The number one, it, you know, if you think about it, this year we have the global economy is down four to four and a half percent, and euro down higher than that, closer to eight percent. U.S. down five and a half or so percent, and then next year we'd have growth across the board. This year, we actually have China growing slightly. Um, and when focusing on the U.S., which is obviously, you know, major constituents, a major issue here, you know, the question is, we have it growing about two and a half to three percent next year. You know, that goes back to Angel's, you know, basic point, which is you're going to, what we have already seen in the U.S., when we look at July and August data, which we have one in every two American households, you know, they're transactions and payments go through us. So you see the consumer spending and all the industries which could get back to work, on Hell's point, back to a level which exceeds last year already. The question is you have industries which are not back to work. Obviously cruise lines, airlines, hotels, um, you know, uh, restaurants and things like that. And so that unemployment factor of 10% is really very focused. Whereas 
when you started in April, May, everybody was out of work. And so that recovery is making you move back to a level, as Angel said, the question from here on in is it is a grind. And I don't, and that's the tougher thing. And if we had a reversion or an, a second wave of import that caused shutdowns, you'd be concerned. But overall, the U.S. economy has recovered to a, to a point. Uh, we look forward to continuing to recover. And it's really going to be about the same thing that everybody said. This is a war on a virus. And you win that war, the consumer confidence will be with, with restored and the ability to do the things that generate that other, those industries' activities will be restored, going to movies, flying on a plane, uh, taking a cruise ship, whatever it is. And that isn't critically important to get the unemployment levels back down to where they should be. Uh, and that's what we look forward to over the next uh, several you know, quarters. But right now, you've seen it recover. Spending has recovered to the same size as last year, but it's not broad-based enough to drag with it the unemployment levels. You've been, as I said, leading the charge really for the forum on looking at the kind of ESG targets that businesses ought to be setting for themselves. Given what's going on in the global economy right now, is it the right time for business to be focused on this? Uh, or is this a distraction? What's your, you know, how do you make the case to your fellow CEOs that ESG really is important while they're dealing with this crisis? Well, if you think about the discussion of build back better, building back better or uh, a better recovery, a recovery that's uh, more uniform and has in it the, the balance between people and uh, environment and profit for shareholders, stakeholder capitalism, what Klaus has been talking to us all for 50 years. Th this is a, the best time because in the end of the day, you know, we need to be relentless about this idea. If we believe the SDGs are important, which we have all said we do, and if we believe we have to make progress, and we believe that the investor community is just very focused on companies who not only do, do well for their shareholders, but do well for their stakeholders. There's not a better time to make sure that we have the metrics to measure that success so that companies are making progress can be recognized and rewarded. And the reality is that that's, that's, that's the combination we're working against, the combination of having the investors the operators and the asset owners all agreeing that we've got to make progress and build back better and all the different things we're talking about. And you have to have a measurement system that says who is doing that. And that's why the metrics are important. These are the stakeholder capitalism metrics at the end of the day. And they define what success should be. And they defined uh, progress in the SDGs. And there isn't a better time to do it, especially now when you add to it what uh, Tom and, and, and Angel uh, referred to, which is the amount of fiscal stimulus can help us accelerate the move faster on top of everything else. But the, if, look, in the United States, we're having a racial and social justice uh, a dialogue that has uh, not been had since the, you know, the late 60s and the you know, mid 60s. And that is also critically important here. If a company doesn't understand what their shareholders are demanding from them, what their customers are demanding from them in this regard, I think they're missing the point and these metrics help measure that. Thanks for making that case, Brian. And I just want to take it up with, uh, with Stacey Cunningham from the New York Stock Exchange. Um, Stacey, as president of the Stock Exchange, some of the uh, world's biggest companies quoted there, they're going to be the companies that are going to potentially be looking at adopting some of those standards and measures that Brian is talking about. Do you see that change coming rapidly? And what do you think needs to be done uh, in order to get there? and to reach the vision that Brian and some of the people working with him have. Yeah, absolutely, that change is definitely coming. And what we're seeing, and just to, to take a step back to see what we talk about, what we saw in the first half of the year and how people reacted, companies 
were focused on stakeholders. During the, the months of March and April, as the pandemic was spreading, we saw immediate action from so many companies across sectors to change their businesses to be part of the solution. That's a stakeholder mentality that they weren't just focused on their bottom line. So I think you really do see that companies believe in the power of, of focusing on stakeholders. As they look for the future and the long-term outlook with, with respect to ESG, it's not a one-size-fits-all one solution. Different companies are going to focus on which disclosures are most relevant for their businesses. We, we provide guidance around how they can help navigate that process. Frankly, we work with Bank of America and Brian's team on capturing the data and metrics so that that can facilitate sustainable investing. Importantly, what I hear from companies when I talk to them in the US, I think the investment community is lagging a little bit the rest of the world on focusing on ESG. They're catching up and they're, they're, definitely, they're definitely heading in that direction. But what we're hearing from many CEOs is that they are so focused on it because their employees and their customers are, are focused on it. And so they're already making those changes even as their investors are, are catching up to, 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 the, to the rest of the world. And so I think we are seeing that going to continue. Uh, certainly over the past few months, the S in ESG has been squarely front and center as companies are focusing on the health and, and safety of their employees and their and their communities. And so that's certainly certainly something that we've seen. But I don't think that means that it, that any uh, focus on climate or other issues will will fall by the wayside. So how quickly can we expect to see ESG kind of standards popping up in uh, company reports in some of the people on your on your exchange? You're certainly seeing uh, an increased amount of transparency and disclosure about, uh, uh, from, from companies. I do think it's a delicate balance. And one thing we need to keep in mind as we put requirements onto companies that we don't focus too much on, uh, on uh, we don't, that we don't end up shifting the balance between the benefits of being a public company versus a private company. And so as companies are focused on these things, they are, uh, you know, there's a cost associated with, with it. And so many companies might choose to stay private just to put off the cost of, of handling all of the disclosures associated with being a public company. And so one of the things that we are focused on is, is making sure that it doesn't become too much of a burden, that there's an easy and consistent metric system that can be used, that it doesn't drive companies to staying private. Because if companies stay private, investors lose access to those opportunities. And that's not something we want to see happen. Thanks. Um, stay with us, uh, because I want to come back to a question from Raju Narasetti at McKinsey, who's asking, should we be focused now not on tackling the, uh, the COVID crisis, but is reestablishing the necessary conditions for business to function? Uh, and are we getting ahead of ourselves in kind of almost thinking past uh, COVID? And I want to come back perhaps and ask uh, both uh, Brian and Stacey that question. But before doing so, I want to turn to Beijing and to Li Jin, uh, welcome to the Great Reset Dialogue, Legion, and uh, thanks for joining us. Your perspective, China joined this crisis early and uh, has po probably left it faster than any other economy. Can you give us a kind of almost a situation report on, on how things look now uh, from your perspective running uh, one of China's biggest business news services? Thank you, Adrian. Always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, an honor to sit on this sit on this panel. I've had the honor to interview many of the fellow panel panelists throughout the years. So China, um, China's policies 
has showed resilience, uh, evidencing the numbers we just heard that uh, China might expect 1% uh, GDP increase this year compared to uh, um, whatever the uh, uh, contraction the world is bracing up for. But at the same time, the, uh, it's largely thank, uh, thanks to the tight control of the virus. Um, as you probably know that uh, now is almost marked the 10th day that China has no locally transmitted cases anymore. And the tight control based on contact tracing and massive quarantine and massive testing helps to resume consumer confidence largely. So if you're walking the streets of Beijing or Shanghai, um, you don't see that many people wear masks and the restaurants are busy or the movie theaters are opened and the uh, uh, travel are resumed largely. The, uh, there is a pent up of travel and uh, hotel and uh, tourism. But at the same time, I think um, there are several strains of policies that are coming up. One is like everywhere else, you can see the speed up of digitalization. And on top of that, you can see obvious, obviously the uh, retail that go into online. Even before the virus, China is leading in a lot of areas that are related to the uh, online consumption. 20% of retail took place online and now it's already 25%. And um, of course, we cannot ignore the, a lot of risk and uncertainties related to global economy and uh, least, uh, at least, uh, not least, the uh, US-China relations. Um, some of the uh, policies, policy initiatives are trying to address that. Um, one word, one term you'll hear very frequently covered by Taishing and a lot of other media as well is what we call a double circulation or dual circulation. That is, instead of relying on the global market, we also need to beef up China's inner circulation. Basically, if we quote uh, the um, economist in his cover story two weeks ago that the US-China conflicts help China to prioritize its industrial policy and try to have the domestic um, resilience based on its uh, industrial capabilities. Um, but if we look closely into the stimulus, that's the third point I want to make is uh, where the stimulus is focusing on. And this time China's obviously taking a lesson from uh, the great financial crisis, which China jumped with the four trillion stimulus immediately and spent almost 10 years mopping up the over liquidity and the uh, shadow banking and the bad debt. But this time the stimulus is more reserved, more cool headed, and it's targeting to what we call the new infrastructure. Another term I want to uh, call your attention to. Um, the new infrastructure is future oriented, it's data, it's information service, and wants to pave the way for future growth. And that also come to um, what we discussed today is the ESG. And if we, I think it's safe to say that we are on the eve uh, for the ESG to taking off in China because um, two major driving forces behind that, the global investors and the government policies in the wake of the, uh, uh, the, the, the virus crisis are all towards that direction. But we can elaborate that later, Adrian. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to come back to uh, Raji Narasetti's question from McKinsey. Um, and Raji is really asking if uh, we can uh, get the conditions, focus on getting conditions right for business to uh, get back to business. And I just want to get a sense from, uh, from Brian and from Stacy as to whether or not those conditions, enough attention is being paid to what business needs to get on and, and get back and get working. 
or if uh, in the course of the crisis we've perhaps lost uh, some of the focus on that. And Brian, perhaps if I can turn to you first, you've got a huge workforce spread out across uh, both the US and, and other countries. Sure, I, I think one of the uh, points made earlier uh, was the impact of this virus on SMEs and uh, small and medium-sized businesses. And so when I speak to governors and mayors who received you know, funding from the federal government to do training and do other things, one of the points I make to them is you need to figure out how to get uh, the equipment and the capabilities for a small business, which doesn't have the talent that we have at Bank of America to handle you know, all the inputs and medical advice and everything. You, you got to get them the resources to open. So the real question for you is if you want the restaurants to be open is what do they need and how do you get it to them and use your money in the very near term to spend on that and then figure out about training people for the future jobs. Because if you get caught on the second, you're going to forget that the, the barrier to reopening, you know, a restaurant or a, a local theater, or a local uh, uh, particip uh, uh, participant level people coming in to see a show or something is going to be that particular environment. And can they do the cleaning and the, and the PPE and all the different things we talk about. So there, there's a heavy focus that has to be made on enabling small and medium-sized businesses to get back in the game across the board. And it, that that is something I think gets lost. And I, I'm not sure that's exactly the question, but I, I agree with that. Meantime, we need to figure out whether the unemployment level at 10% in the U.S. and likewise around the world is, as Angel said earlier, there's a risk that this becomes a permanent uh, group of people that we've lost in, in the employment side. So we need to figure out what skills that group of people need. And there's a lot of work going on in all the communities where we work in and serve with the educational institutions, not necessarily as degree granting, as more skill building. Can we get them to accelerate their efforts to bring skills to move people from uh, you know, into, into jobs that will c come out the other side of this as being more secure than the jobs they went into it with? An example of that would be the retail uh, point that uh, is, was made by our colleague in China and is true around the world, which is, you know, the amount of people working at retail cash registers and, and clerks is going to go down. So the question is, how do we retrain and reskill those, those, uh, those uh, citizens to move to another place? And, and that's a medium term aspect because a, a lot of this retail won't recover that at all or fast. And so those are the discussions. Near term, it's equipment, training moving people around in longer term, where the jobs of the future and how do we make sure people are coming out of college and, and community college and high school with those uh, capabilities in the US. Yeah, absolutely right there, um, Brian. And our colleague uh, here at the forum, Sadia Zahidi, is working on a billion uh, people reskilling uh, as part of her reskilling revolution uh, work. Uh, Stacy, can I just turn to you? You obviously um, heard Brian's contribution, but I wonder, the CEOs and the uh, businesses who make up your index, and also yourself as a, as a business leader, do you think enough focus is being put by governments on getting business back and working? Yeah, I think one of the things that we saw from many business leaders is they were pleasantly surprised by how effective their teams were at working remotely. When I think it shocked so many people when they had suddenly 100% of their workforce or close to it moving out of the office and into their homes and productivity remained high. What's important, though, is that we do need to get them back into the office because that's so critical for the economic recovery. We think about the businesses that are dependent on people coming into the cities and actually supporting their, their recovery. So while we need to balance the health and well-being of our employees, if we're a business that can help provide the PPE to the, to the restaurants and small businesses 
uh, through either government or business, as Brian mentioned, but also to our own in, in businesses so that we can make our employees feel comfortable coming back. They're really critical to that economic development and recovery. And what we, you know, we need to keep in mind that the vaccines and therapeutics are really also important to our optimism, not just that we get the virus under the control, but how quickly we can do it. You know, we might be able to make it through another six to 12 months, but we need to make sure that we really do have an, enough protections in place so that people can can start to, to walk around more freely and take advantage of the retail stores and the restaurants. And, and, and that's how we're gonna get to, you know, the economic recovery that we need. Lijian, I just want to turn to you and say there seems to be reports that some parts of China's retail economy are back in, in action and that some parts are picking up uh, speed in the kind of conventional retail world. Um, what kind of recovery are we seeing? There's also talk that we're seeing a supply side recovery, not a demand side recovery in China. What's your uh, view from, from Beijing? The, the recovery, I think, it's uh, differs from sector to sector. The one, the sectors that receive the uh, that e uh, easily receive the stimulus, and also larger in size, of course, are recovering um, most the fastest. Uh, the industrial sector, uh, the uh, manufacturing sector, are much faster than the consumption. But the consumption uh, in the last few months um, uh, largely resumed, especially uh, the. Uh, the, the FMB sector, the tourism sector I just mentioned. And there is also a divide between the um, this big, big, medium and small size uh, enterprises. Uh, if we see the attention PMI, um, you can see the, the, the three numbers, uh, 50 for the small, uh, 51 for the medium size and 52 for the large size. So small and uh, small companies are uh, indeed bearing uh, a lot of the brunt of the, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the damage for the virus. Um, but at the same time, you can see that the, a lot of creative solutions that people try to uh, uh, come up with, especially during the uh, pandemic, that let's admit uh, under the quarantine, many of the restaurants are closed, but the delivery companies are come up with a um, pledge that can, we, can, can you loan us your employees? So you can, we can keep those people employed. So I think um, increasingly, especially the virus are calling business to come with the heart, not just with the uh, focus on the return. But yes, now, um, now the, the life is back to normal and more focus is coming back to uh, um, business bottom line. Thanks for that. Um, I wanna just, if I can, turn back to Senior Minister Tarman uh, in Singapore. And uh, Senior Minister, you mentioned at the beginning your concern about SMEs and about the impact that this crisis would have on them. A lot of people have looked at Singapore as providing a really interesting uh, example of how to tackle the crisis from a government point of view. Are there lessons that you've learned in the past few months dealing with this crisis in respect of SMEs that might perhaps be uh, useful to other uh, geographies and other parts of the world? Well, I think um, the lessons are not unique uh, to Singapore, um, but we've tried to uh, design and implement schemes that um, uh, have been able to keep the SME sector uh, afloat. And that involves, firstly, um, everything you do on jo for jobs on a broad basis um, helps SMEs um, uh, by definition. Uh, they're the largest employer of jobs. And the uh, job, the sort of um, 
uh, job subsidy schemes, a uh, variety of ways of designing it, the Germans, the Danes, uh, Singapore, and so on. But they basically involved significant subsidies to help firms hold on to uh, current day jobs, have really helped the SME sector. Without job subsidies, you would have had a uh, cash flow crisis that would have um, uh, meant that um, SMEs would have, on a much larger scale, uh, gone bankrupt, basically. Uh, second, um, I would say that um, uh, what we've done on the credit side, uh, again, not unique to Singapore, has been extremely important. Um, uh, we have used the bank credit risk, uh, cre bank credit appraisal mechanism rather than direct credit from, from the government um, as our conduit, but with the government providing the bulk uh, of the um, uh, of taking the bulk of the risk. In other words, through through risk guarantees. Uh, the government basically takes the bulk of the risk. And that's worked out fairly okay uh, in our case. The banks um, are, 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 playing, are playing the game well. Um, they are extending credit, not completely freely. They're making risk judgments. But it helps us to achieve the necessary uh, triage where you don't want to put more and more credit into firms that really don't have a future post-COVID. But you do want to err on the side of... Um, um, uh, on the side of uh, uh, giving a chance to SMEs who may or may not uh, have a very strong future because we just don't know at this point. We've got to give time for market discovery. Uh, market discovery both within sectors as to who the winners and losers are going to be and even market discovery across industries. I mean, obviously, some industries are going to contract and we know which ones those are. But there's a range of other industries where it's just not very obvious whether through business model redesign, uh, you're going to get uh, a recovery, including a recovery by SMEs. So we've got to give time for market discovery. And the credit mechanism is, I think, an extremely important one. And it's got to be subsidized by government. It's got to be subsidized by government. It's helpful that our banks entered this crisis with ample capital. I'd say that's true globally uh, and certainly in Singapore. Uh, certainly, it's true in the U.S., um, but uh, banks on their own uh, would not have been able to uh, keep credit flowing and um, uh, been able to avoid a liquidity crisis becoming a solvency crisis for a large part of the corporate sector. So, not unique to Singapore. We've tried to do it well, and we've continually learned as we went along. So, um, I'm aware... Um... Minister, of the, both you and uh, Angel have, uh, and Borger, in fact, have to be at our Board of Trustee meeting in just a few minutes. So um, I'm going to try and draw things to uh, a close uh, just a little earlier than the end of the hour. But Angel, if I could just end with you, because you started uh, us off on uh, a slightly gloomy track with your prognosis on the global economy. Um, we always try and make sure that people don't leave this call uh, too pessimistic because we need both optimism and resilience uh, to be brought to bear on the crisis. Are there areas of the global economy that you're looking at now from the OECD in Paris where you think, okay, that is somewhere where I can see signs of, of hope, where I can see a vision of what the post-crisis economy might look like? Well, some, some areas, uh, as you have seen, I mean, that they've grown to, uh, to $2 trillion in, in capitalization uh, simply because... Um, there's very great demand because of confinement. But let me go back to, for example, SMEs. 
the great secret with SMEs is, is not even the rate of interest, but it is timely support and sufficient support because they work a lot with, um, with, the, uh, with the, uh, the question of capital, working capital, but uh, is the solution more debt when already even before the crisis, the COVID crisis, there was too much debt on the books or should we, uh, are we looking at more, uh, the need for more equity? And that has to do with not only SMEs, but SMEs in particular are very important because of the, they have more flexibility, but also uh, we have to encourage a mechanism which, where they can close faster and be reborn faster. Uh, uh, because uh, the last thing you want is for millions and millions of SMEs to be maintained in artificial life. The second thing uh, about leasing is this, you, you mentioned, is this, is this a supply led? Yes, but in the end, there has to be a demand to, <laughs> to support the, the supply led. And, and I would say in the case of China, clearly this is happening because the jobs are there because it's now a billion reskillings uh, that is a very, very interesting. Uh, we were discussing about a billion trees being planted at the, um, at uh, you know, in Davos, uh, uh, as a trillion uh, even. Uh, so a trillion even, even. Uh, even a trillion. Yes. Well, here uh, a billion reskillings uh, sounds like an extraordinary idea. Um, and then uh, uh, the metrics, uh, the question of metrics, as Brian said, metrics are absolutely. Uh, necessary because if we can't measure it, we uh, cannot manage it. We will not know where we are. And here, I just would like to leave you with an example. The Business for Inclusive Growth Initiative, which is, was a, a, an OECD-led initiative. Now it's being led, 40 companies being led by Emmanuel Faber, the head of Danone, from all over the world, joining, signing a pledge to be you know, good citizens of the world. And of course now focusing a lot on COVID because of the circumstances. That is a very, uh, well, uh, a very positive. And you want me to end on a, uh, a positive note? On a, uh, that is a very interesting way in which companies can actually make a very great contribution to the situation today and still be good profitable companies uh, and be good not only to their shareholders, but to their stake stakeholders. Angel, thank you very much for that, uh, that note of uh, optimism at the end of today's call. Uh, a huge thank you to Brian Moynihan from Bank of America, to Stacey Cunningham from the New York Stock Exchange, to uh, Senior Minister Tarman from Singapore, and to Li Jin in Beijing. If you'd like to join Li Jin in just a couple of minutes, uh, you can do that. She'll be hosting a call that explores some of the things we've been talking about in this hour. Thanks to all of you for joining and see you in a fortnight's time. Thanks very much from the World Economic Forum. Thank you.